Wednesday, daylight draws to a close and Thursday begins at sundown, dinner time. For most of the Jewish families that had made the journey to Jerusalem, this would be the last day to prepare for Passover as it launches the following evening. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will demonstrate his love for us. I mentioned that this Thursday would be preparation for Passover, but also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those remembrance holidays were not combined in the Torah, but people had combined them during the Babylonian exile. They had made a great many changes, and they had created new traditions. And with an estimate of 250,000 lambs slaughtered, In a permitted two-hour window, many, if not most, of these sacrifices were done in private homes rather than in the temple, as reported by Josephus. Joachim Jeremias calculates that the priests on duty could only slay 18,000 lambs during the two hours on temple grounds. So, at the time of Jesus, we have two holidays merged together, described with interchangeable names— that could mean either or, and we have people privatizing Passover sacrifices, which would also mean that they could happen at different times. We head to Luke's official authorized account. By the way, it's Thursday. Thursday. Luke 22, 7 to 13. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Here, Luke is using the combined name for the holidays and says that the timing of this dinner was the day before the sacrifice. Now, this doesn't really matter to the story, but for linear thinkers out there, Jewish days start with night and end in day. And if it's time for dinner, that means that the day has just begun, and if it's the day of the animal sacrifice, then that will happen at the end of the day portion of today, almost 24 hours later. By my best calculations, that puts us on the dark of Thursday, as the Passover in 33 was on a Friday. The lambs have been set aside for four days, then they'll be sacrificed at the next sunset, at the end of Thursday light. And at least most sources agree that sundown was the signal. At the first moment of darkness, the start of Jewish Friday, each family would take the lamb and eat it as the Seder meal. This is a meal Jesus would not have an opportunity for. The disciples do not know this, but Jesus still desires to eat it with his disciples, so he asks them to go and prepare for it. This would have been a 24-hour warning to prepare rather than returning to Bethany for the night in safety. He tells the disciples where to find a furnished room in Jerusalem spacious enough to enjoy a Passover celebration all together as a family. And they go ahead of him and they prepare the meal. This meal will indeed be later known as Jesus' Last Supper. And it appears that they gather for a meal together But it might not be the meal unless, like many families, we're eating Passover in their own time. In this case, a tad early. But this is not the only interpretation. Luke continues. 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knows time is almost up. It's scary close. He has all the same emotions we have. And how he must have enjoyed this last supper with his friends. But before they eat, they wash. John's account tells us this part in John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This hour comes before the Passover and Judas's hour of betrayal will be the same evening. And with this knowledge in his heart, Jesus gets on a bended knee like a slave and washes the dust and grime off of his friend's feet. In a way more powerful than words, he demonstrates how the last shall become first and the first shall be last. And then he gets to the most outspoken disciple. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter knows this picture is wrong. The son of man washing the feet of a semi-retired fisherman for Capernaum. You wash me? But Jesus explains, he'll understand later, but Peter rejects this, and we might feel the same. But Jesus explains, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And some have used this to say, unless you're baptized, you can't be saved, but that's putting heavy weight on earthly water. Imagine resting all your eternal hopes on a tub. No thanks. What I think Jesus symbolizes here is two things. First, Trust and obedience in Christ is crucial. And second, Jesus washing dirt away could represent what he provides for the one who trusts. John 13, 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So now Peter wants a full bath. But Jesus says that if you've been bathed, you don't need to wash anything except your feet. But the way I understand Jesus is once you have your sins washed away by the blood of the lamb, you're clean even while covered in dirt. We become positionally holy and no work by us can maintain that. But you still get your feet dirty with all the sin in your life. But it's just We never become unclean. We confess our sins to God and we have our feet rinsed off over and over and over. If you walk down the street and you get hit by a car and die, does the dirt on the bottom of your feet keep your cleaned soul from God? I don't think so. You would appear in front of the Lord with dirty feet, but clean in his eyes nonetheless. Now look at that last line again. And you are clean though not every one of you. Verse 11 continues, For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is going to soon identify the unclean participant, but for now, Jesus just washed his feet. Not every one of the disciples in that room have been chosen. Play the spooky organ music. Dun, dun, dun. Judas has rejected obedience to Christ and has colluded with the Satan and has chosen riches instead. Jesus explains that he's telling his friends in advance so when it comes to pass that same night, they'll understand and believe. Now, each Gospel account tells the tale of Jesus notifying his betrayer. Luke puts it this way, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? Matthew and Mark say something similar. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Then in John 13, this is the account. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This will be the most difficult day in Jesus' whole life. Even this dinner among friends to remember Yahweh's deliverance of their ancestors is spoiled by Judas and the Satan. And he tells the Satan inside Judas to do what he's going to do quickly. Now, no one understands what's happening. This is the ultimate plot twist. It's the et tu brute of the Lord's life. His faithful disciple of three and a half years has turned his back on Jesus. Judas has rejected him and has allowed his pride and selfishness to be a stronghold for the Satan to play him. As Jesus speaks, Judas's hand meets Jesus's hand in the dipping bowl. What a picture. It's almost finished for Judas, and that means it's almost finished for Jesus. The other 11 disciples, and maybe more outside of them, are reclined with Jesus at his last supper. But Judas has split. Jesus has identified who is the worst. Even though Judas has excused himself under the guise of buying supplies for the real Passover, so the disciples return to a lame conversation topic that they have before. Who's the greatest? They argue the point of who would even betray Jesus, and it turns into a game of who never would. Luke twenty two twenty four. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, 
and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is big stuff. Now, it starts with who's greater. You know, can I sit at your right hand, Jesus? Can I sit at your left? Uh, But Jesus is saying, you guys are thinking like pagans. Who's king over that or over this? Who should I rule? He says, don't worry about those type of things. Work to serve each other. Just like Jesus had given as an example by washing their feet. They're like us. They forget. Jesus doesn't want us lording over each other. He doesn't want us forcing Christianity on anyone. He doesn't want us passing Christian laws or grabbing authority in every area. He wants us to serve from underneath. Jesus goes on to tell them again, because they're with him during his toughest days, that they'll be given special positions in Yahweh's realm, in the kingdom. In fact, 12 thrones are assigned for them. The disciples will be with Jesus as he drinks his cup of suffering, but each one of them will drink their own. It's no wonder Jesus promises such a big, marvelous reward. Had these men not toughed it out and spread the gospel like they did, even in the face of certain death, we may have never heard of the risen Savior. Now let's try to jump into Jesus' mind at this dinner. His heart is to reward his fellow sufferers. He understands the pains of abuse and abandonment and hate and betrayal and loneliness, and he's thinking of the rewards for those who trust him through those dark times. As dinner continues, Jesus is in the seat of the family father, and he lifts the cup. Here, Jesus gives a sacrament our church is still observed today. It's the long-lasting symbol of the covenant of his body and blood. Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. A Passover reminds the people of Yahweh's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery because of his memory of the covenant he had made with Abraham. And at Passover, the father would raise the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate when they came from Egypt. And that's what the disciples would have expected Jesus to say. But instead, he tells them of an act of new deliverance through his body That like Passover, they should remember by repeating the symbols together. The cup full of red wine should remind them of the blood of the lamb. Now a new lamb, bringing a new covenant. What is he saying? Well, the answer is not going to click in the mind of the disciples until after his death. But the bread that Jesus tears in front of them is a symbol of his body that he will sacrifice for them and the entire world by the end of the day. The spotless and pure lamb led to slaughter and the wine is the symbol of his blood that he will spill for all mankind. And if you just leave it at that, Jesus makes a tremendous sacrifice and it's just a nice story, but the story's not over. Jesus subtly alludes to the resurrection by introducing the new covenant. The Jewish people, both the disciples and the religious leaders, were still following the law of Moses and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it could never save them, but they followed it out of love and obedience to God, out of loyalty. At least they were trying most of the time. And it had blessings for obedience, and it had the curse of death for almost every sin. 
they don't need it replaced by something else like people always say. They need salvation to remove the curse, to remove the death. Also, they need Jesus to walk in complete obedience to give the full blessings by fulfilling the law for them, for us. And I could say much more about the saving work here, but I'll let the apostles explain that to us later. In the context of this story, it's really not in the disciples' view, only in Jesus's. The way back into Eden is guarded by a cherubim and a flaming sword. It is a death to attempt re-entry. And Jesus is knocking down that barrier. The kingdom of God is to be reopened. This new covenant comes with the new commandment. John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus shares some information that the disciples can't yet comprehend, like how God will glorify him and that he's going somewhere they can't find. This, speaking of his victorious death and his victorious resurrection and his victorious ascension, but he also gives them a crystal clear command. Love one another as I have loved you. This is what we are to be known for. The new command from Jesus for the 11 disciples to observe and apply to their lives is to love. But not just an ordinary love, love like his love. And they'll realize through his death on the cross just how deep of a love that Jesus means. To love one another as Jesus loves means to love others even to the point of your own personal death, being willing to lay down your own life. The disciples loved each other this way, and they loved the church this way, and they loved us this way because they all laid down their lives so that we might hear the loving gospel of Jesus Christ. But Peter is stuck on the idea of where Jesus could go that he can't follow. That seems crazy to him. John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter believes in his heart of hearts that there's no place on planet earth that he wouldn't follow Jesus. He feels ready to die for Jesus. The problem is, Peter won't even follow Jesus through his trials once Jesus is arrested. Peter will try to avoid being associated with Jesus at all. And this is a warning for us in two ways. First, it's easy to be gung-ho about Jesus when it's easy. And, but when it gets hard, that's when people bail. If following Jesus to the cross were safe and easy and required no risk, Peter would have done it. Even if following Jesus to the cross were comfortable, you know, just kind of comfortable, Peter would have done it. But it was uncomfortable and it was scary, so he quit. I think we can identify with that. And second, let's think about literal death here. What if someone pointed a gun at you and demanded that you reject Jesus or die? What would you do? I think we all feel just like Peter feels right here. We would feel like we would be ready. But he isn't ready. Jesus predicts his denials will happen before the light breaks on this long Thursday. But there's more from Luke's account. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go to you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
This is more than a simple denial of Jesus. This is a serious battle that Peter will undertake. The Satan has sought permission to sift Peter, as he has done similarly to Job in ancient days. And in the same way, God has given this permission. Sifting is a troublesome time when God allows you to go through the fire of the enemy, facing temptations, tortures, pain, to test your faithfulness. And what Jesus has to offer Peter for protection is his prayers. Thoughts and prayers from Jesus? I believe Jesus still prays for those being sifted by the enemy today, based off of what I read in Hebrews. Of course, Jesus is in the same room as the Father, but he prays for you still. We need to keep our feet clean, our prayers up, our armor on, our, our sword sharp, not for a culture war, but to resist the temptations of Satan that are usually in the forms of wealth and power or pleasure. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus has a great plan for Peter, knowing he will return to faithfulness. Where is Jesus going, though, that they cannot follow? John's account picks it up in John 14. They're outside the upper room now. They've left. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. What a promise. Jesus has gone ahead of us to the kingdom heights to prepare a place for us. We have at least an apartment in the Lord's house. It's part of our blessed hope at the resurrection of the dead that we will be safe with Jesus. He isn't the grim reaper who comes for us upon our individual deaths. This is a resurrection reference. But the disciples at this time are just confused. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Which way? Jesus. Which truth? Jesus. Which life? Jesus. How do I get into Eden and back to the Father? Jesus. How do I know the Father? Jesus. The way into the kingdom is a person. The truth of all reality is a person. The life that conquers death is a person. It's Jesus. John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How can we see the Father? Jesus. Now, would the disciples really do greater works than Jesus? Well, Peter never fed 5,000 people, but he converts 3,000 in one sermon. This is possible because Jesus has gone before them to the Father and leaves the Spirit behind them. Miracles are great, but the work of the evangelist is even greater. And I'd argue there are still miracles too. Then Jesus tells them they can ask for anything in his name and it will be given to him. Jesus hasn't been some sort of genie. In Jesus' name aren't the magic words to grant your every wish. To ask for something in someone's name is to ask for something that they would ask for. If you ask for something Jesus would ask for, it'll be answered. 
Your wish is lined up with the will of God, which always happens. And there is one thing he's asking for here. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Beautiful. He's not leaving them as orphans. Unique to the church in all of history, the Holy Spirit of God has been sent as a counselor and a guide, entering into individuals who are in Christ, binding them in unity and in purpose. We are fused with God, sealed for the day of redemption. The prophets of old tasted the Holy Spirit upon themselves once in a while. King Saul had moments of it. David had it and feared he would lose it. But we, the body of Christ, have it inside of us every day, which makes us temples. It's my belief that in this day and age, we receive the Spirit and we learn how to quench it as soon as we receive it, rendering it almost useless to us. We need to get out of the way and to get in step with the Spirit Mighty things can be accomplished if we let the Spirit breathe as we simply trust God with our hearts and actions, but our modern fears and our lust for control keeps us out of step. It's no coincidence that Paul says we need to be free as a prerequisite for walking in the Spirit. We are not Spirit-led when we are leading. Now, the other Judas, soon to change his name for obvious reasons, to Thaddeus has a good question in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, why just us, Lord? Why not reach out to the whole world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So it is for the whole world. He will make his home or temple in anyone in the whole world who will love him and trust him. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Matthew 26:30 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Scene change. Headed out of the city and to the mountain. And it's time for the teaching of Jesus to draw to a close. The ruler of the world is coming, which is a reference to the Satan inside of Judas. The betrayer draws near. The Satan's rule will be dissolved by the upcoming victory of Jesus on the cross. He is no longer ruler of this world. Luke twenty-two thirty-five, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. 
He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So now the disciples are cleared to have their gear to stay alive. Money, food, clothing, and even a weapon. Now the disciples tell Jesus they have two swords out of the 11 of them. And now I always imagine that Simon the Zealot must have one of them um, because of what a zealot is. And of course we know Simon Peter has one at least within his reach later. Anyway, they have two and Jesus says it's enough. Now, this has been interpreted many different ways. Some say Jesus rebukes the disciples saying, that's enough. That's enough of this kind of violent talk. I don't see this since he just told them to have swords. Another way to look at this, Jesus says two swords is enough for a group their size. Jesus isn't foreseeing a fight anyway. He's not establishing his kingdom by the death of others. But another way to look at it is that the two swords represent human inadequacy to stop God's plans. These two swords, whether wielded by the two Simons or others, cannot stop God's plans. Or maybe, most likely, by having two swords among them, it will be enough for them to be seen as a band of criminals and transgressors, as fitting with Jesus' quote of Isaiah 53.12. Whichever is true, there are eleven disciples, one Savior, and two swords heading out into the night after dinner to that private place of prayer at the foot of the Mount of Olives, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Many believe the words of Jesus in this next section are spoken in the upper room. I believe when Jesus says in John, Arise, let us go from here, that they arose and went from there. Thus, I believe that these words are spoken by Jesus to the disciples on the way from the upper room in Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And let's be clear. Where these words are spoken and these prayers are prayed is of no importance. What matters is what Jesus is saying. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The punchline is that new commandment, love one another. The setup is dependency on Jesus. We will not love another on our own. Not in this way. Now, the Old Testament frequently used a vineyard or a vine as a symbol for Israel, God's covenant people. And Israel had failed to produce fruit as Jesus illustrated in the fig tree. Jesus declares that he himself is the vine. 
And if we live in him, if we're dependent on him for everything, especially love, will produce fruit. When we try to do things on our own, we do not bear fruit. Those who are not joined with Christ through faith are cast away. We remain in him and he remains in us. Often we fall into the trap of thinking that this means right living. Right living is great, but it can be done apart from Jesus. And it certainly can be done without love for others. It requires no courage and no faith and it produces no fruit. Jesus recharges us when we trust, when we remain in him. We need not just remain in Jesus, but we have to remain in his love as well. Jesus says if we remain in his love and love others, we will bear fruit that lasts. Let me compare Jesus' vine metaphor to a contemporary metaphor for electricity. The creator is the vine grower and Jesus is the vine. The spirit is the power of life flowing from every direction. We are the branches. The fruit is the result of the branch remaining in the vine, right? So in the contemporary metaphor, the creator is the generator. Jesus is the power grid. The spirit is electricity. We are the power strip. And anything that uses electricity is a result of staying is a result of us staying plugged into the grid. Disconnected, we're just an ugly piece of plastic. He says, if you do all kinds of good things for me, but have not love, you have nothing. Hmm. So love's critical. It was his new commandment for the disciples just a little bit earlier. If you haven't loved, you haven't been doing the most important thing. Remaining in his love requires trusting God to protect us so that we can be vulnerable and trusting with others. Yes, he still loves us when we don't trust him and are disobedient, but our fruitfulness will plummet. That's not his best for us. Jesus has called the disciples his friends if they remain in him. I guess that would make us his friends if we remain in him too. And that is a great and awesome privilege. I don't think we have a proper understanding of how silly it is for the God of the universe to call humans as friends. It's like the equivalent of building a tub to hold a bunch of sea monkeys. And then you look at them and you seriously call them your friends. We must love each other. Why? Well, one good reason is because nobody else will. If we don't love one another in Christ... Will be without love on the earth. Jesus explains, starting in verse 18 If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. See, we must love one another if for no other reason, because the world will not love us. We're different. We're set apart. We're filled with joy, peace, and hope. We walk not as children of darkness, but children of light with confidence in our future. If we do not seek power as others do, but serve from below, will be hated. If we do not live in fear as others do, but trust in the Lord, will be hated. If we seek power out of fear, we might be hated too, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the world doesn't love that. It hates that Jesus is the only way. And the world's hatred of Jesus will drive him to the cross on which he will save them. And that time is drawing near. But Jesus isn't going to leave behind a people helpless. Remember what he's been praying for. He reiterates it 
in verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, that you may remember that I told them to you. It's about to get ugly. Caiaphas, the high priest, already has a plan in motion to destroy Jesus because he thinks Jesus is against God. A Pharisee named Saul will later oversee the murder of Stephen, a deacon of the church, and many other Christ followers in what Saul believes is his service to God. And Jesus explains this to them because he's going to be leaving them, but he doesn't want to abandon them. You know, Jesus' departure, which includes his death, resurrection, ascension, and sending the Spirit, is the best thing that has ever happened in the entire history of mankind. John 16, 5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will always take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This helper is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to followers of Christ as their power and strength. The Spirit works through the minds of the apostles so that they're able to understand and teach all that Jesus would have said here that they cannot bear. Everything about the meaning of the cross and the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit can do the same for us. The Spirit will guide our steps and our words and the way of the truth of the capital T. In essence, the Spirit is the key to any successful imitation of Jesus. John 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, in a little while you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. But when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice no one will take your joy from you. I love this. He's saying he will die and the world will celebrate while they mourn, but then he's going to return and they'll be filled with joy and the world will return to sorrow. For the disciples, Jesus' death and resurrection is like having a baby, really awful on the front end, but unbelievably special and happy on the back end. 
He continues in verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So from this point forward, Jesus is done with figures of speech, cryptic wording, and parables. He'll speak plainly about the truths of God and what is to happen. And the disciples are pumped about this. Think about how big of a mess we would have made with the Great Commission if it was a parable. Really glad that that was perfectly clear. Jesus tells his disciples that soon they'll be scattered and he'll be alone with his father. Let's keep that in mind. He believes Yahweh will be with him on this journey. In just hours, this will all come true. He'll be arrested. His disciples will scatter. Peter will deny him. John will run away, but then do a U-turn with the girls. John Mark will run away naked. All the others just running. But they shouldn't fear. Jesus is overcoming the world. He is the strong man who has come to destroy the Satan's hold. When he says take heart, the original language meant Be courageous. And I like that better. Three times God told Joshua to be strong and courageous as he fought to win the promised land. God was on Joshua's side, so he was to have no fear. And then Yeshua, Jesus, tells the disciples, in turn, be courageous. I'm on your side. Have no fear. Jesus does not want us to be defeated. He allows pain to still exist. He allows sifting. He allows trials, but he wants us to be courageous. He wants us to be like him in this way. Is there a hope and a joy inside the new you that's bubbling underneath your pain? Trust Jesus to bring that to the surface as you stand strong and courageous in the face of the obstacles. Jesus has walked before us. Now, what would you pray on the day that you were going to die? It's with this victorious statement, I have overcome the world, that he then starts into what is known as his high priestly prayer. Now, Jesus isn't a priest, so why would he have a priestly prayer? Well, Jesus doesn't fit the role of an earthly priest. He holds that heavenly position, though, and is positionally the last priest we will ever need. John 17, 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Remember, he's speaking clearly now. He defines eternal life. Knowing God and knowing Jesus. And this begins long before our deaths, after lives, and any lives after life after death. Trust and follow is right now. This trust bestows upon you the gift of eternal life where your life outlasts your death. We are not born eternal creatures, but we're given immortality by the one who possesses it. This eternal life Jesus speaks of here in the original language speaks of a deep, intimate relationship. 
the word here in the Greek is for no, no God, no Jesus is the word gnoskos, which is often used in the New Testament to describe the intimacy of a sexual relationship. To us on earth, there's nothing more intimate than that. Jesus used the same word to describe the intimacy that we find in him, a vulnerable, full trust where we continue to know him better and better. Jesus prays earnestly to be glorified so that God may be glorified for giving eternal life to all. Glorifies the Greek word doxazo, which means to value. Father, the hour has come for you to value your son, that the son may value you. Now, remember how many times in our study people have sought to end Jesus' life, but the scripture said his time had not yet come? Well, now it's time. The time has come. Jesus will be arrested and tried shortly. He will then be crucified and buried. And what will that accomplish? We'll soon find out. Jesus asked God to deliver him through his sufferings and his death to raise him from the dead in glory. He keeps praying in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I valued you on earth. He showed Yahweh value by doing the assigned job completely. Now he wants to be valued in Yahweh's presence like before his incarnation, the eternal state of Elohim. Has he completed the work? He can say he has because it is certain to be fulfilled. The time has come. But now his prayer shifts to his friends in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What a prayer. He's asking that in his physical absence, Yahweh will protect them from the evil one. He doesn't want them to be removed from the world. He needs them in the world to reach the world. So they'll live in it and they'll live in its pain and its trials. But he wants God to see them, remember them, and care for them. And he prays that they be sanctified in the truth. And sanctifies us a fancy word for being set apart. Now, Jesus moves on to praying for those who would one day believe in him because of the passed down message. That means he's praying for us. And in most translations, this passage is hard to follow, but the theme is unity. Starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that may, may be one, even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is a special prayer for the reader. Those who have believed because of the word of the apostles, Jesus wants us to be unified, to act as one. And there's a spiritual truth that we are united through the Holy Spirit that makes us all possible. But there's also all of our pride and our shame and our fear and our lust for power that divides us. Divides us so much that it's almost as if the spirit connector isn't there. We divide over politics. We divide over doctrine. We divide over carpet colors in Baptist churches. Consensual orthodoxy is a practice that tries to work around our divisions and back to unity. It requires the believers to agree to follow Jesus. And in my church's case, uh, the Apostles' Creed. And then you're free to disagree on any other things. But stick together. It's hard and people give up sometimes. And I get so tired of hearing prayer requests for safety while people do pro-life rallies where they traumatize passersby with aborted fetus posters. But they get tired of hearing prayer requests for other people's gay children who are trying to find ways to make their children feel loved and accepted. And others can't stand hearing prayers about gun bans while others can't stand hearing prayers about arming teachers. It's rough being together, but we are all trying to follow Jesus. One day, when heaven and earth merge, all of our weirdness towards these issues will turn into foolishness in our minds as we see the living Christ and we just run to him together. And this is also what Jesus desires. He adds this in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In total, Jesus' plea for the believers is that we be preserved in the world, that we be set apart for special use, that we be unified as one body, that we would one day join in Jesus' glory. Well, does God answer Jesus' prayers? The author of 1 John writes, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. All of these things have been done and will continue to be done. Believers are preserved through grueling deaths for the sake of Christ. Believers have been sanctified with different gifts of the Spirit and the spread of the good news and the edification of the body. And we've been unified through the Holy Spirit. And we discover the joys of unity ultimately in heaven. But on earth, we let the Spirit lead us past our pride and prejudice. And we will join Jesus in glory. This will be complete at the resurrection of the dead. Now, They near the garden. It's time to enter. Due to length, I've decided to split Jesus's longest day this Thursday into three parts to give each part special treatment. But I hope that you're enjoying going through the days of the week along with Jesus. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Jesus demonstrates servitude by washing the disciples' feet. We're to follow in his steps and lower ourselves in order to love others. Jesus says we have to be bathed to be part of him and that the bathed should still wash their feet. He instructs us to come together and eat the bread and drink the cup to remember his sacrifice until he returns. He commands that we love one another in a way that he loves, sacrificially, humbly, passionately. We have many opportunities to do this. Jesus permits sifting but he prays for us. He has prepared a place where he is for us. In the meantime, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus has gone away, but he sent the Spirit to us. He indwells in us when we trust in Christ. He offers us peace through the Spirit. Jesus says we cannot bear fruit outside of him, that all of our own works and efforts are fruitless if they're not done in him. Jesus calls for us to remain in him, When we remain in him, we can walk in his spirit. Jesus calls us friends. He demonstrates his love for us in his death. 
His birth as a human, his perfect life, his every thought and action have been for love of you and me, and thus is death, a death that looms large in our story. Jesus says we will have trouble in this world, but take heart, he's overcome the world. We'll have struggles in this life, but Jesus has solved the sin problem. One day, sin will be no more, and it will be made right. What opportunities do we have to add this to our mindset? Jesus declares in prayer that eternal life is found in knowing him, and he prays for believers' unity. He is good, and he wants what is good. May we see that unity is not a weakness. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will face many trials.